We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Chris Irons from the Quoth the Raven podcast. We're going to split this conversation into two. And the second part, we're not going to be putting on YouTube because we've had some censoring issues recently. So if you want to hear the second part where we dive into a little bit about COVID, some philosophical ideas, and just some general talk about life that's going to be available on all of our audio platforms, as well as Spotify, Rumble, Odyssey, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome back, Chris. How are you? Tom, I am so happy to be back. I'm thrilled, actually. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm excellent. We're kind of chatting a little bit before we started here. Both ring in the new year, fresh slate. You know, hopefully you don't necessarily need to change a whole bunch in your life to to be able to look forward to the new year. But yeah, it's always great to have you back and to chat because, you know, you look at a lot of stuff outside, let's say, necessarily the particular gold space. You know, you've you've looked at China quite a bit. You have quite a bit of experience that I don't necessarily get to be exposed to on a daily basis. So it's good to be able to have a chat with you and and also read your blog from time to time because it it really helps bring some some new ideas, other, let's say, risk areas into my thinking for sure. So maybe we can kind of start there. Why do you think that 2022 was maybe a, a prelude for volatility in the markets? Well, look, what I think is that 2022... We saw a lot of volatility, but not as much as we're going to see in 2023. And by volatility, I don't necessarily mean that the market is going to crash all year long. But what I do mean is that I think in 2023, we're going to see we're going to see capitulation. We're going to see fear and panic in the markets at some point. I think it's a mathematical certainty just based on the fact that interest rates are now at 4%. Neil Kashkari said this morning that, you know, he thinks rates should go to 5.4% before the year's over, which is hilarious because just last year he was predicting 1% rates for this year. So he is gone, okay? He's on Jupiter, he's on Mars. But regardless, the point is, like some of these other Fed governors, he's talking about a finding the neutral rate at you know 5.5%. And as everybody knows, the economy and the market respond to higher interest rates with a lag. And so we raised rates as aggressively and quickly over 2022, almost as we ever have at any point in recent history, certainly leading up to 2018 when the market crashed during the holidays in 2018, you know, we had been moving in 25 basis point increments for, I think, two or three years at that point. What we did in 2022 is we went from zero to 400 basis points, you know, in 12 months. And all that means is we're going to get probably an even more pronounced response from the markets. But because all of that happened in such a shorter period of time, 
it's going to take, you know, we're still kind of waiting for the market to respond. It hasn't had two years. It hasn't had three years, but you're starting to see it in the macro data this morning. You know, new mortgage applications down 13 percent this morning versus, I think, one or two percent in the year prior. We're going to start to see it, Tom. And, you know, the ISM numbers are coming in under expectations. All the every macro data point that you could look for has come in indicating that the economy is starting to grind to a halt. It'll show up in earnings. It has already started to show up in earnings. It has showed up in massive company layoffs, which we saw, you know, getting started in 2022. When I woke up this morning, you know, I always read all the news headlines every morning. I think like four of the first news headlines I read this morning, Salesforce and like two or three other companies all cutting their staff by 10%, cutting their staff by 5%. And so that will continue into the new year. And as those things will continue, the market and the economy are going to catch up. You know, the economic data is going to get worse and the market is going to throw a fit at some point. I mean, a real fit. I've been way ahead of this because, you know, look, I started writing in November 2021 about the NASDAQ potentially crashing. That was before inflation was on the map. And it was before Russia invading Ukraine was on the map. And my thesis was basically, look, you know, the market was at hyper elevated points prior to COVID. Then we introduced all this hot money into the system. Then all of a sudden, weaponized gamma became a thing, right? Where SoftBank, Goldman Sachs, all these companies, if you can read in the Financial Times, did some great coverage on it, that these companies were basically utilizing options to move the tech indices, which is why you saw the NASDAQ basically double off its post-pandemic lows in March of 2022. For an index, that is a perverse move. That is a stunning move for an index. You know, it's an insane move for a blue chip company by itself. But for an index, it's it's it has to be a six or seven sigma outlier. I don't know what it is, but it's ridiculous. And my point in November 2021 was, look, prior to the pandemic, we were already saying that everything was overpriced. Well, what happens when you take overpriced and on top of it, you layer basically what I thought and still think was a completely artificial burst higher, euphoric kind of, you know, bubble burst higher, overdrive, afterburners, you know, overclocking essentially of the market. And that is what I think we saw from March 2020 to like the end of 2021. Now you have a couple of things all converging at once, right? The hot money spigot has been turned off and rates are rising. Personal savings are drying up. Consumer credit is rising to record levels. And what does that mean? It means that not only are people going to be feeling the crunch of all of the pornographic amount of debt that is outstanding now, and not only is the cost of carrying that debt going to rise, but On top of that, don't forget, we have to give back all of that artificial move higher, which I think is what we're seeing in Tesla right now. We could talk about that in a second. We have to give back all of that artificial move higher that I believe was basically caused a lot by weaponized options, weaponized gamma. And then, you know, we give that back. And then where are we, Tom? We're at the ridiculous nosebleed levels we were prior to the pandemic. I mean, people forget 2018, 2017, 2019, 
you had Yellen saying assets were overvalued. You had Carl Icahn putting out videos saying that the market was overvalued. I mean, it was widely mm-hmm. accepted that the market was extremely overvalued in 2017, 2018, 2019, right? Then on top of that is when we, you know, kind of blew this bubble that much bigger thanks to all the COVID stimulus. So you wrote back in all the COVID stimulus, then you're back at where we were prior to COVID, which was extremely overvalued. Then you got to take extremely overvalued and you need to head back somewhere towards your recessionary means, as in averages, right? Your market cap to GDP averages, your S&P earnings ratio averages. And I know this doesn't necessarily account for all of the new money in the system, but the point is from this point going forward, there's a really strong case, especially obviously now with the macro environment with rates where they are, that the market still needs to come in another, you know, maybe 40% from here, I think, before we can even start talking about a bottom. On top of that, sorry, and and I hate to be long-winded, but on top of that, on top of the fact that you had a euphoric bubble on top of an already overvalued market, now heading into a year where rates are at a ridiculous amount, you know, 4% heading to 5% maybe. On top of that, you have all of this geopolitical and global economic risk that was nowhere to be seen prior to Russia invading Ukraine. So we are at the beginning of, in my opinion, a brand new epoch for the global economy in general. And, you know, as Larry Lapard said on some podcasts I was listening to today when I was running, you know, trends are trends for a reason because everybody moves in the same direction and everything, but trends do eventually end. And I think that we're heading to the end of a major decades long trend in markets as we roll into 2023 here. Well, yeah, you recently wrote in kind of a a summary of 2022, this tweet thread that it's been something like almost 15 years since we've really had interest rates this high. And you and I have talked about the idea of lag of these rate hikes having their full effect, what that means for the balance sheets of companies going forward. But you know that the other part of this that I wanted to kind of touch on a little bit more was kind of summarized in one of your your articles called Tapped Out, where you talk about how this is really affecting Main Street or the average consumer. You know, you investigated a little bit about how the hikes have affected people's personal balance sheets, how it's affected their mortgage rates, all of those types of things. So do you think that the average person is very close to being, as you said, tapped out? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I feel like the average individual that has relied on you know, look, here was the narrative coming out of COVID, right? Personal savings were up. Why were personal savings up? Because people were out generating more productivity? No, because people were sitting at home collecting more in unemployment than they had ever had in the past. And the government was doling out PPP loans to anybody and everybody, including people like Ross Gerber, who took PPP loans. What does that mean? It means that anybody could get a PPP loan for anything. That's what it means. So the government... Which, you know, and again, this is another mind boggling exercise in government efficiency that we could dedicate an entire podcast to, but we won't. What does the government do? Okay. It takes, you know, a couple trillion dollars. All right, Tom. And it and it sprays it at the country. All right. Like a guy holding a fire hose 
just any amount of money in any direction with no accountability. They nailed some people for fraud, sure, but the amount of waste and abuse and, you know, wrongdoing and corruption that occurred with this money is off the charts, okay? Off the charts. And when you think about things like that, that's what makes it difficult to understand the thinking and, you know, tracking people's $600 Venmo transactions. But again, another discussion for another day. All of that money took the personal savings rate. And if you pull up a chart of the personal savings rate in the country or whatever the hell it's called, average household savings, you can pull it up on Fred. You know, you see there's this enormous spike, okay, when all of that happened. All of that has been drawn back down, okay? Those savings have been spent and then some. So the the savings are now underneath where they were prior to the pandemic. And on top of that, what happens when you run out of savings? What do you do next? Well, you go and you start taking out credit cards, right? You take personal unsecured loans. You take home equity loans. You take you take on debt, right? Once you run through your savings, the only place to go is to debt, right? And so what have we seen? Not only have we seen the personal savings get drawn down, but we've seen, you know, consumer debt levels spike to like, recent record levels. So what does that mean? It means that we are running on very, very, very thin ice in terms of, you know, liquidity as a country. And as rates continue to rise, all right, because remember, rates are still rising. The effects of rates rising don't take place right away. They take place In the quarters after they rise, every time rates tick higher, everybody's debt gets a little bit more expensive, which Mm -hmm. essentially just means that everybody has a little bit less discretionary income. The cost of the mortgage goes up what? You know, maybe it goes up $75 for a household. Well, you multiply that by, you know, 100 million households, and all of a sudden you're talking about a material sum of money. Those numbers are still in the process of going up because all that stuff operates on a lag. Those costs are still getting more expensive. And if super genius Neil Kashkari has its way, those numbers will continue to rise well into 2023. As that happens, discretionary income, income that is used to you know, buy products or services or income perhaps that people were saving or putting away or trying to put in their 401k or put into their brokerage accounts – All of that contracts. So what does that mean? It means that money comes out of the market, which sucks, and, you know, will ultimately feed on itself when markets start to move lower. But it also means as spending goes down, you know, all of these companies, basic household consumer staples, anybody that sells anything, you know, business is going to decline. Business will start to decline and earnings will start to contract. You know, and what happens when earnings contract? Well, <laughs> then the price you're paying for stock winds up getting more expensive. And so stocks re-rate. And what happens when stocks move lower? Well, then people get margin calls and they're forced to liquidate or they notice the value of their 401k, you know, going down instead of going up and people start to cash out. So it becomes this pretty gnarly cycle, you know, basically a basic econ 101 like deleveraging cycle that takes place. And so my argument is heading into 2023, we're not even in the thick of that yet. You know, that flywheel is just barely starting to spin up here. 
And shit's going to get real this year. The other thing to consider is when that starts to happen. So here's what everybody will say, right? Everybody's going to say, when we have our first limit down day or, you know, limit down two days or the market drops 15% in a week, because I agree with Lepard, right? The Fed has this third mandate, which is essentially financial market stability that nobody talks about. So what would prompt the Fed to act? Well, if the S&P took a 15% shit in, you know, in 48 hours, that might start to turn some heads. That's, you know, it's certainly get the lobotomized automatons in Congress who know little about anything and even less about finance to start to moan and complain to Jerome Powell that he's doing his job wrong and start to create pressure on the Fed. You know, I'll never forget 2018. Steve Mnuchin called the banks. That's what he did. He called the banks after the market crashed, as if that meant anything at all, you know, and and dutifully reported back that, you know, I just got off the phone with Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan, who tells me, you know, the banks have ample liquidity. It's like, okay, you know, like, what does that have to do with anything? You know, stocks are down 10% over two or three days. Like, it just will cause panic. That panic will beget other panic. You know, this is when you see like financial news anchors, like crying on the air and all that kind of fun stuff that I personally can't wait for, but other people are horrified by. So the point of the matter is that people think that the Fed will come in and immediately make policy changes, and and they probably will, right? I don't know if it'll start with saying we're not going to raise anymore. At some point, they'll take more of a dovish stance. I don't know if they'll cut right away. I don't know what they're going to do, but the point is it doesn't matter, right? So my point is, Heading into 2023, in another article that I wrote on my blog, it's called Why Timing the Fed is Not Timing the Market, is just a reminder that even after the Fed acts, right, because I do think we are going to see limit down days in 2023, and I don't think it's going to take very long. So, you know, I've been saying it for a year, but it really is starting to feel like zero hour is upon us. And I said, all of this stuff happens with the lag. What I think will happen is then the Fed will act. And I think there will be a misunderstanding by the market that everything is fine once the Fed acts. But that doesn't mean anything because the same, these policies, first off, they've they've overshot the mark, which they don't even understand. And they won't understand until the economy implodes onto itself like a dying star. You know, stay tuned in 2023, it'll happen. In addition to that, you know, making another policy move is just it will operate on a six month lag. It'll operate on a 12 month Mm -hmm. lag. Jim Chanos tweeted out a couple of weeks ago, you know, hey, just a reminder that, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed like a year after the Fed pivoted. Right. So, yeah, that was actually something I wanted to go over with you is like is looking at those examples. Do you think. Do you think they're important or or instructive? It is important because people will need to understand that just because the Fed is pausing or cutting, you know, that doesn't mean that everything's okay. It doesn't mean that the path is clear. It doesn't mean that it's green lights all the way through. And I just think that that's I think it's important to remember that timing the Fed and timing the market are two completely different things. We're really we're in a much more precarious spot than we think we are right now. We we don't know and we won't know until we wake up one morning and it bludgeons us in the face, not unlike COVID did, not unlike past market crashes did. I mean, Tom, we knew each other back then when, when COVID first started, you know, 
January, February 2020, all I was saying is markets are going to crash. This is terrible. This will come to the United States. You'll see. This is a global problem. Nobody wanted to hear it. The market went up every fucking day. The market went up. I did a podcast called Pandemic and pandemics and other things that make the market go up, right? Which is like a snarky way of saying like, hey, we're on the verge of a pandemic. Buy stocks, right? Because that's what every asshole was doing. Well, what happened? You know, February came and went. March came and went. And then all of a sudden... We woke up one day and everybody's head was sewn to the carpet, right? Because everybody realized, hey, we're on the verge of a pandemic. And why didn't anybody tell us about this? It's like, open your eyes, right? So it's the same situation now, right? I know what I'm looking at. You know what we're looking at. Your listeners know what we're looking at. Your listeners understand that $31 trillion in debt times 4% interest rates equals a disaster, right? You don't need to, I don't need to run the calculations for you. I don't need a graphing calculator. I don't need a spreadsheet. I don't need to even understand anything about how the system works. I just need those two big numbers to give you a bird's eye view that this just isn't going to work. It's, you know, square peg, round hole, smashing them together, not happening, right? Very, very, very simple bird's eye, 30,000 foot view of things. Something's going to break. Where, when, how, I don't know. You know, it was like with Celsius, you know, I mean, we talked about that before that happened, right? What did I say to you? I said, look, you know, they're offering 15% yield on their product. I don't understand the inner workings of any of this, except for the fact that it just doesn't make sense, right? Alex Mashinsky went on Kitco with Peter Schiff and ridiculed him told him he didn't understand things. Three months later, he was filing for bankruptcy. I expect the United States government to do somewhat the same. Chris, that's something I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on a little bit more is if you think that the Fed has really trained investors to, you know, jump back into the market as soon as as soon as they come back to the rescue, as soon as they pivot, you know, when in in March of 2020, we saw the markets crash as, as you and I were discussing. And then all of a sudden we saw this, you know, insane rebound. And this seems to me like, you know, the perfect opportunity for people that maybe missed that. And they're salivating on the sidelines, waiting for the next time that that happens. Do you think that they've really trained investors to jump back in with both feet? Well, it's a little bit of a different situation, you know, because rates were at zero then and our rates were at, you know, I forget what rates were at in March of 2020, but like one, maybe one and a half percent, 175 basis points, you know, and then, and then we cut to zero. You know, look, the point is, if the, if the Fed came out tomorrow and said they were going to do $10 trillion in open-ended QE and they were going to slash nominal rates to negative one percent, there's no doubt that the stock market would go much higher. <laughs> the, the point is, it's just not necessarily going to happen right away because you have all this detritus that needs to work its way out of the, the plumbing of the system, right? First. So you got to kind of like, you got to kind of force all the turds out of the system first <laughs> before you can allow the, the clean water to come through the plumbing, if that makes sense. You know, if that happens, me and you will be on a yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean because gold will be at $5,000 an ounce overnight and gold miners will be at 25x at that point. And, you know, who knows what we'll be doing at that point, Tom? You know, maybe we'll invite the listeners. I'm sure that many of your listeners have much higher net worths than I do and have much more invested in gold and silver than I do. 
maybe one of them will invite us out and we'll just go party on the Mediterranean for a week or two, like the world's ending. Um, look, <laughs> you know, markets will wind up going higher, but there will be kinks that need to be worked out first. I don't think the Fed is going to do that. There's a huge difference between slashing nominal rates to negative 2%, which the Fed just can't do. They just can't do it. I mean, we, we'd have we'd have 20% inflation. We, we, I mean, we'd be talking about hyperinflationary scenarios at that point. So they don't have the option to do that. What they have the option to do is peel back 5% to 3% rates, right? And that's, you know, first off, lest we forget current monetary policy when you're talking about real rates, it's still accommodative, lest we forget that, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's still not restrictive when inflation's at six or seven percent and rates are at four percent. You're still talking about negative two or three percent real rates. The Fed doesn't have the option to to make a major massive cut like that. What they would do is they would maybe do a hundred and fifty basis point cut, right? Would be like their big that would be the big like bazooka and say, all right, well, we're gonna we're gonna start bond bonding. I don't even know. You know, it's just a reminder that like that doesn't mean the problems are solved and quite frankly, might also trigger a loss of confidence in the Fed. You know, when you start talking about situations like that or, you know, like yield curve control, if if the bond market starts to kind of lose its shit, you know, you have to have another discussion, which is this loss of confidence in the Fed type discussion that I think it was Luke Groman was talking to you about couple months back, maybe October, November, I remember listening, mm-hmm. because that, that that's really the next, that's going to be the next big elephant in the room. And, you know, when you look at things from a geopolitical spectrum, it, it, it's clear to me that China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, they all know this already. I mean, <laughs> there's a good reason they're stockpiling gold and, and doing their best to try to create a monetary system outside of the one being used by the West. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, their loss of confidence, probably uh, in our central banking system. Mm -hmm. When we wake up to realize that, you know, the same loss of confidence that they've kind of already figured out, well, then it's panic time, you know, then it's like Katie barred the door kind of time for for sound money and just for general lunacy and austerity and you know that's that's i don't know that's the situation where you where you talk about you know people that hoard gold and guns i don't know if it happens but i certainly know that it feels like now it's more of a possibility than it ever has been let me just tell you something tom when you know when the fed came in and they implemented QE in March of 2020, QE infinity. One of the things that I said was I'm getting long some stuff, right? Just as the market was crashing, the day that Bill Ackman was on national television crying about how the markets were crashing and COVID was going to devastate the world was right about the time I did a periscope called being a contrarian in the time of a pandemic or something like that. And I said, you know, look, I'm going to start looking at financials here because this isn't a financial crisis, you know, basically because I still had confidence, a a degree of confidence in the Fed saying, all right, you know, the Goldman Sachs is okay here at, you know, 0.5x book, which is cheap for a bank. This is not a systemic financial crisis. This is going to be an earnings crisis. It's going to be, you know, a different kind of crisis. And so 
I started saying, this is the time to look at the blue chips, the names that, you know, maybe if you wanted to be a long-term investor, this would be the time to look at those names. So the point of saying that is to just kind of set the stage that I'm capable of playing within the system too, right? And that was one thing I had to learn. When I first discovered the entire central banking model was a Ponzi scheme, I was like, okay, short everything always. Then you kind of learn the hard lesson of don't fight the Fed, mm-hmm. which as much, as much as you hate it, because what they're doing is morally repugnant, as much as you hate it, it, it makes you money, right? There's, one of my friends said to me years ago, you know, bears sound smart, bulls make money. And it's so dumb. It's such a stupid saying, but it registered with me. And it makes sense. You know, they're like, yeah, you do sound smart because you got it figured out. But are you smart enough to play the game within the confines of the game so that you can make money? Right. Because if you're if you're long gold because, you know, the system is fucked, but gold is going to go down 50 percent over the course of a year. You're down 50%, regardless of how right you are on macro. Mm-hmm. So look, that's setting the stage for, for the idea that I don't have any problem playing within the confines of the game. It doesn't bother me to change my mind. It doesn't bother me to have a grasp on things and you know try to use that grasp to, to make money. However, with that being said, now I feel like we're on the cusp of something that could usurp that entire system could usurp all of the rules of the game from March 2020. And that's when you start talking about a loss of confidence in the Fed. That's when you start talking about a loss of confidence in the central banking model, in fiat, in the US dollar as reserve currency. And what are we seeing now? We're seeing all these things that we've never seen before. I mean, we've never seen, you know, the US just grab somebody's reserves and basically just steal them like we did with Russia's, right? What signal does that send to the world? It sends a signal that like, hey, we could just take your shit whenever we want, right? So even Germany, even our allies, right? What did, what do they think when they see something like that? Well, they think, wow, you know, if we piss off the US, you know, who knows what recourse they have. And so it gets the rest of the world thinking. And along those lines comes the idea of like, well, you know, how does the U.S. actually sustain its quality of life despite carrying all of this debt and, you know, managing all these trade deficits? doesn't really make sense. Oh, OK, well, that begets the question of like, all right, you know, well, like what gives the dollar its reserve currency status? And it's like, OK, well, the petrodollar. And then, you know, it's like, all right, well, who, who are the Saudis allied with? You know, are they allied with Russia and China? Are they allied more with the U.S. now? And and all of a sudden, all these wheels start to turn. And, you know, Russia basically laughed at the sanctions that we put on them. I mean, they endured some pain, but they said, all right, we'll just stick it out. Like we have the oil, mm-hmm. you know, China has the productive capacity. And all of a sudden now they're paired together. China's going to invest in, you know, Russian oil assets strategically. Russia's going to help China. And I'm sure China is one way or another helping Russia militarily as well as we, you know, help Ukraine. So the world is bifurcating right in front of us, you know, and they've made no secret. The BRICS nations have made no secret about the fact that they want to create their own reserve currency. They've said so much. It's, you know, there's public headlines about it. I've written about it. 
So what do you have? Well, you have kind of this unprecedented moment where the U.S., in arguably its most precarious financial position ever in, in the country's history, with the amount of debt that we have, the amount of inflation that we're facing, the lack of productive capacity, the trade deficits that we have, this, you know, just funneling money out of the country to Ukraine, the government spending, which is just off the charts. It's it's almost inconceivable how careless we are with our spending. We have completely lost our compass financially, this country, completely. It's stunning. It's breathtaking, really, is what it is. You know, we... You know, I don't even know what hope there is if we were to cut government spending tomorrow and start to try to, you know, rein some of this in. We have completely lost the Econ 101, you know, compass of what a position of strength is financially, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is a position of strength having a strong balance sheet and, you know, positive cash flow if you're a company? Yes. Well, it's the same if you're a country. Right. You want a strong balance sheet and you want positive cash flow. Right. Which means you want to bring in more in, you know, tax receipts than you do doling out from spending or or more from trade than you do doling out from trade. Right. And we we're in the worst situation. We we have the worst balance now, arguably, than, than we've ever had. And, you know, I was listening to Larry Lepardo. I was running today on some other podcasts you know, talking about Fort Dix and whether or not the gold is at Fort Dix. And I'm just running and I'm just thinking like, of course the gold isn't there. You know why? Because if there's a string, Tom, they're going to pull that string before they do the responsible thing 999 times out of a thousand. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, and I think Larry's right. He said, you know, this probably happened sometime before we got off the gold standard that somebody just said, well, you know, we got all this gold here. Might as well sell some to pay for Whatever, whatever government program we were working on at the time, something that I'm sure is completely defunct that, you know, somebody has retired off of. But I'm sure we have. I'm sure we don't have the gold reserves that we claim we do, you know, because the whole rest of our economy is a house of cards. Why wouldn't that be? And so if you're the West, I mean, uh, if you're the BRICS nations and you're looking at the United States now. What must you be thinking? Mm-hmm. What what must you be thinking when you watch Joe Biden, you know, hand over a hundred billion dollars over the course of the year to Ukraine and then you know abscond with another country's financial reserves, you know, operating from a position of a deficit with a insolvent balance sheet, you know, and and, and your friends. The Saudis are are really what they're they're the one thing that's holding up the dollar's reserve currency status. You know, the, the, the petrodollar? Is that it? Because you know, the Saudis are, you know, they're they are entering into security agreements with Russia and China. You know, the whole point was we were gonna provide them with security, and that's why they were gonna transact in dollars. So what's happening now? They're entering into security agreements with these other nations. And meanwhile, China, Russia, 
Saudi Arabia, India, they're not doing business exclusively in U.S. dollars anymore. They're buying and selling oil in rubles and in yuan. So what does that mean for the dollar's reserve currency status? What what is their backing that? What our our, our nuclear arsenal? Well, what good is that? You know. Yeah, this seems like a a slow slide that is just going to you know, kind of pile up and pile up and pile up. And then, like you say, all of a sudden we're going to, we're going to wake up one day and realize that everything has changed. Yep. And, you know, so people ask me my outlook on, on 2023, you know, can the S and P move up 10%? It's like, who cares? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, we, we have bigger problems than that. Yeah. You know, if it does move up 10%, well, what will happen? You know, you'll have uh, guys like Tom Lee go on CNBC and pat himself on the back for meeting his year-end S&P target. Everybody will, you know, feel a little bit better on the golf course while they're looking at their 401k balance on their phone. But then we got to deal with 2024 and then 2025 and then 2026. And there's much bigger forces at play here. And whether or not the S&P is going to return 10% or not this year. And that is all an aside to the fact that I'd like to mention Tom Lee's year-end target for 2022 was something like 5,100 on the S&P, okay, which means he got it wrong by almost a factor of 40%, <laughs> which is just stunning because we're talking about indices again we're not talking about penny stocks on the over-the-counter markets we're, we're talking about stock indices so to be wrong by 40 percent mm-hmm. is stunning and i know everybody knows this but i'm just going to say it anyways that the fact that they continue to have somebody on that network and on all these networks that has been this wrong and has been unable to see what's going on very similar to Kathy Wood, very similar to Ross Gerber. And we'll talk about Tesla in a second. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that these people continue to be brought on and hailed as heroes, you know, the, the purpose is to see the big picture. If you want to master the game theory of markets, you have to zoom way out. You have to be able to look at everything from, you know, the stratosphere, and then you have to look at everything through a microscope too. And you have to understand how all those different perspectives interact with each other. You can't ride like the most euphoric stock bubble in history and just continue to predict what really anybody could have predicted, which is that stocks will go up and label yourself as an investing genius. You know, let's talk about Tesla real quick. You know, the acumen of these managers becomes, it gets put on full display, Tom when the playing field changes, right? When rates are at zero and the Fed is doing unlimited QE, it's very easy to be an asset manager. You can buy garbage and it goes up. It's very easy. You don't even need to know how to read financials, right? And I'm still not sure that a person like Ross Gerber does know how to read financials, okay? When somebody like that goes and buys a company like Archimoto, for example, which I looked at the financials of the other day for the first time, as far as I can see, that equity is worth $0 tomorrow. I mean, it's just that company is basically bankruptcy waiting to happen, right? And I was looking at their cash burn and stuff. You know, you look at somebody purchasing a company like that, even in the even in the most perversely 
out of control, insane, euphoric scenarios. There isn't an excuse to buy that because all oh, the play is, oh, it's, it's an EV company. You know, okay, maybe that would have been nice three, four, five years prior, you know, but like even the EV bubble was saturated at that point and it was still a bubble. The acumen of these individuals gets put on full display when the gravy train underneath it all stops because all of the behavioral Pavlovian incentives that these geniuses had over the last 10 years, which essentially was, okay, let me buy the dip. Every time a stock goes down, I'll buy the dip and that's it. And the market will just continue to move higher. You know, we talked about this, me and you, with Kathy Wood and Robinhood, right? IPO'd at like 18 or something, couldn't find a bid at 18, went down after the IPO, went way up on a gamma squeeze. There were a bunch of call options bought. It went up on a gamma squeeze to like 38, fell to 30. And Kathy Wood said, I'm buying the dip. And it's like, no, actually, you're buying 2x the IPO price where it didn't have an actual bid to begin with. But she didn't understand the mechanics of what was happening in the market. She didn't understand the fact that that was an artificial price for that company, right? So what did she do? She wrote it down to eight, all right? Congratulations. The acumen of these individuals is on display when the gravy train under it all stops. When rates go up and the free money spigot gets turned off, it causes the market to look at equities through a very different lens than it normally would have, a much more conservative lens, a much more risk-adverse lens, okay? A, a company like Archimoto, all right, that Mr. Gerber has in his ETF is as good as dead when a shift like that happens. I mean, the equity, in my opinion, that company is worth zero right now on paper as the financial standing, the equity is worth zero for anybody to hold that company really in any kind of environment, but especially in this environment is in my opinion, gross financial negligence. <laughs> okay. So Tesla's a great example of this, right? What happened in December, 2019 heading into 2020 with Tesla, right? All of a sudden, Right before the pandemic started, right around the same time I was listening to the World Health Organization do their first press conferences on COVID, which was, I think, December 2019, January 2020. I remember the coffee shop I was at. I was at Backyard Beans in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, where I was living at the time. I would go there every day. I'd work off my laptop. I was listening to the COVID press conferences through my headphones. And I was watching Tesla stock and I had, you know, my little news feed going also on my screen. And what I was seeing was large, substantial, massive, out of the money call option buys in Tesla, the likes of which I had never seen before. I pay attention to unusual options activity. I have, you know. Forever since I've been trading, since I've been following guys like, you know, Sang Lucci and Open Outcry for 10 years. So anytime option scheme comes in on a name, I pay attention to it. It doesn't matter whether it's Tesla or whether it's Microsoft or whoever. It, it, it makes its way across my feed. And then I always take a look. Oh, is this a biotech? Okay, do they have they have results coming up? Or is this a company leading into earnings? Because you always want perspective. Hey, does somebody in the options market know something? Mm -hmm. So with Tesla, what I saw was extremely unusual out-of-the-money call option bonds. It was 2020, Tom, and the stock, I think, whatever, was at, let's just say it was at 80, right? And then, 
whatever split adjusted whatever. Let's we'll just say it's an eighty, and the year is twenty twenty. I saw people going out to twenty twenty five and purchasing, you know, four hundred, five hundred, nine hundred dollar strikes, multi million dollar buys. Enough for me to just say those are extremely unusual options purchases. I've never seen anything like it before. And, you know, not in Tesla. And I've been watching, you know, options trading Tesla forever. And what we saw after that was you see the equity react, right? Because market makers have to, you know, hedge their positions. The people that sell those option contracts have to get long a certain amount of the stock to kind of de-risk. And all of a sudden the stock went from, you know, 80 to 800. Um, and that was that first huge run up in Tesla where it was just like, oh my God, you know, and, you know, they posted their first profitable quarter at the time, you know, a penny or five cents per share or whatever it was. But they really fundamentally, that was immaterial, that, that amount of money. The, the move was astronomical compared to, you know, what had happened in the underlying uh, fundamentals. Now, I wasn't smart enough to catch the move on the way up. What I should have done was gotten long, you know, and like all these imbeciles that really, you know, made millions and millions of dollars, you know, on the Robinhood accounts, just buying Tesla call options. It fueled basically a flywheel that started on its own, right? It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Other people came in, they bought call, call options, whatever. Before you know it, you had Tesla that's 10x over the course of a year and a half. And because Kathy Wood and Ross Gerber and the likes owned it, they were rolled out on financial media as these incredible gurus. And, you know, look, good for them. They made brands out of it. Kathy Wood made her whole innovation brand out of it. You know, she's got the vision for innovation, Tom, that the rest of us just don't have, right? That's the problem. So that, that's why we need her ARC fund. <laughs> Meanwhile, I could run a screen for companies with a PE, you know, over 500 that, you know, generate, you know, no free cash flow yield and whatever, and just identify, you know, the 100 worst most overvalued, aggressively valued companies in the NASDAQ and probably go out and buy half of the ARC fund without even, you know, looking at what was in it. But regardless, the stock goes up. These two all of a sudden are geniuses. And we are left with, you know, essentially these two creating their own brands and becoming, I don't know, poster children really for the, uh, for the, for the bubble, the ride up. Well, now all of a sudden that's changed. Right. And so We've seen Tesla was down, I don't know, 50% last year or something like that, maybe even more, 65% last year. Well, the, the, the air is coming out of the bubble, right? What has changed? The gravy train, the aforementioned train has stopped. So once that free money spigot turns off and people's investing attitudes become more risk adverse, people get forced to deleverage like we're talking about, their appetite for risk comes down, and all of a sudden this thing starts working in reverse. And rather than understand that, rather than cash out after this thing 10Xs, right? Because really all you had to do was look at the valuation once it 10X. When Tesla had a trillion dollar valuation, no business, no business doing that. What, what Kathy Wood should have done is said, I got this company that is worth all other auto manufacturers combined times two, I won. I beat the game. Time to cash out and find the next opportunity. But instead, what she did was start making up all this other bullshit. Oh, well, this doesn't count for Tesla mobility. This doesn't count for Tesla's energy. They're an insurance company. They're a solar company. 
you know, so instead of recognizing it and recognizing that the macro environment was changing and taking some off the table, it became an exercise in how do I continue to justify holding this? Because, you know, I'm, I'm on the record as such a bull for this name that it, maybe it would be devastating for me. Or maybe, you know, she really just believes all this. Shit. I don't know. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not interested in trying to figure it out. The, the point of the matter is <laughs> that when the macro environment changes and, and these people's attitudes don't change, okay, that's when you're going. That's when you're going to see real pain. So I was having a discussion yesterday. Well, Arc is at thirty today. It was at one hundred and thirty. I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. You know, do you really think it could fall from here? Yeah, I do. I think it could fall another fifty percent from here. I think it could go to fifteen dollars, because I think that Tesla can continue to move lower, and I think that a lot of the other components still haven't been roped in the right way. Mark Spiegel put out a note this morning, or I published uh, his investor letter this morning, where he says Tesla can fall another 90%. You know, it's not inconceivable. And it appears like Musk, who is over leveraging himself and just pretty much going bananas, is doing everything he can to catalyze that. So a lot of people are going to get a lot of hard lessons because the fundamental footing of the market has changed. And that is what is guiding my predictions for extreme volatility in 2023. Not meaning again that the market is going to crash all of 20. We're going to we're going to go down 95 percent. That's not what I mean. But I do mean we are going to see some pronounced moved lower. We're going to see a an overshoot of a reaction by the Fed. I'm certain at some point we're going to see the market continue to whipsaw higher, lower. It's just going to be a wild year because you have all these unknowns, Tom. Right? Not, not only do you have the, the macro unknowns, you have all these geopolitical and and global economic unknowns. Right? What what day is China going to come out and invade Taiwan? Because you know it's going to happen. And then what's our recourse going to be? Are we going to try to do sanctions like we did with Russia? Well, that maybe will work for thirty seconds. China's going to come out and say, by the way, we have 10x the gold than we told anybody else. And we don't think Fort Dix has anything. Can you prove it to us? Uh, what do we do then? Right. I mean, that changes things profoundly. Any one of these things can happen. Mm-hmm. Any one of them, you know, God forbid, hopefully the war in Ukraine doesn't get crazier. Hopefully it doesn't turn into World War Three. But there's more of a chance today of World War Three, Tom, than there's ever been. You know, like in the last 20, 30, 40 years, I mean, I, maybe going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. But, uh, man, there's so many things that can go wrong right now. And, and to, to be a bull today, to be a bull today, to say the market's bottom today, you have to be OK with saying, I'm all right with buying the S&P at 20 times earnings right now. Earnings that will be declining in the year coming, right? So maybe that 20 turns into 22 next year, 23 times earnings. You have to be okay saying that. And I'm just not. I think there's way more of a chance that the S&P multiple goes to 12 than it goes to 25. So that's my outlook for 2023. Well, Chris, you know, you touched on a little bit of the of the crypto stuff, you know, we saw Celsius blow up last year, Luna, obviously FTX will be, let's say, closest in people's memories. Do you think that that has changed people's outlook on crypto, changed people's way they they think about it as an asset, as a trade, you know, and, and does that in some ways maybe make Bitcoin more attractive again? 
I don't really know because my position on crypto has been skeptical since day one. What I will say is that Larry Lapard did a great job, the, the best job of anybody in describing it on your last podcast with him in a way that makes me more curious about Bitcoin than I've ever been. There's a lot of unknowns. It's very, 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 very early for Bitcoin, right? It's been around 13 years. You know, how could it, you know, there's just so many unknowns. I think he's right when he says that the risk reward for Bitcoin specifically. So let's talk about crypto in general, right? What did we know about crypto? Well, we knew all of these promises to pay ridiculous yields on crypto were just bullshit. I mean, if people were doing that with U.S. dollars, it would have been massive banking fraud all over and regulations would have stopped it. But because it was crypto, they kind of got away with it. Now, of course, it'll be regulated after these blowups, whatever. Bitcoin is not crypto, right? One thing I'm starting to understand that I have started to understand, right, is that Bitcoin's a protocol, Bitcoin's a network. Okay, so I'm starting to understand that and, and kind of what I've said all along that, you know, if we do continue to have this crypto winter, which I think will continue in 2023, because I do think there's significant risks still, Grayscale, Binance, you know, could Sailor get carried out of the trade? Who knows? You got the, the whole Tether fiasco, the stable coins, you know, Dogecoin still has a billion dollar market cap or whatever. There's a lot of excess in crypto that still needs to come out. And as that comes out, it's going to pressure the price of Bitcoin significantly, you know, no matter what. Having said that, do I think that Bitcoin had to come out of this, the, the, the lone survivor or the lone key survivor? I do think it will. I, I think it's likely that it will. I think it's likely that Bitcoin will survive. The only question is, what will it be priced at? You know, will it, will it come out at $10 per coin or will it come out at $1,000 per coin or, you know, what will the bottom be? You know, I, I can't even try to forecast those things, nor do I really even care. I'm, I'm more kind of focused on understanding, you know, the potential use case for it, which now I understand a little bit better than I did beforehand in the sense that. You know, it isn't tangible. It's digital. You know, Larry made some really good analogs that helped me with talking about how people used to doubt software because, you know, that, that software could be worth anything because it was just code on a computer, making some analogs between Bitcoin and, and the advent of the Internet, which, of course, I had heard before, but didn't really fully understand. I'm still on my way to understanding it. I ordered the Bitcoin standard. I'm going to read it. You know, I'm always going to be a gold first kind of guy or right now, you know, when I talk about Bitcoin, I'm talking about a very negligible amount of money that I would invest, money that I'm hundred percent comfortable with losing a hundred percent of. Um, I do own some Bitcoin. I'm buying it, you know, pretty regularly. That's been the case for a while, but I have been a skeptic and I continue to kind of be like a show me first. But I think that the as I understand it more, the asymmetry of the risk reward profile makes sense. It's essentially a call option. You know, if guys like Larry are right, it's going to go up a hundred times from where it's at today. And if guys like Larry are wrong and I'm right, it's going to go a hundred percent lower. So I'm okay with that. The same way I buy a call option in a company because, you know, I expect to make multiples of, of whatever I pay for it. And I expect to risk a hundred percent. You know, my risk is defined essentially at a hundred percent. If that's, uh, if you want to put it that way. 
Mm-hmm. I think that crypto is going to probably be a disaster heading into 2023 because I get the case that it's digital sound money. It makes sense to me. I understand it. You know, the argument of whether or not it's sound money still, I know is still up in the air. I haven't really made a decision, but I get it. I'm starting to understand the use case for it. I'm starting to understand its advantages over gold, but also its disadvantages against gold. It makes a little bit of sense to me now in a way that it didn't. However, uh, gold is still like my primary uh, gold and silver, gold and silver miners, really where I want to be. Obviously, owning physical first is a number one. But I think Larry makes a very good case. And I think that he's he if you go back and listen to the interview you did with him, he makes a measured case for it, which I think is important. You know, Larry's not an idiot. Larry's a smart dude. All right. You know, he makes a measured, cautious case for it, which I respect. You know, I respect that a lot more than Michael Saylor telling people to go out and mortgage their house to buy Bitcoin. And regardless of whether or not Saylor turns out to be right, say he turns out to be the biggest genius of our generation. Right. And he's the first guy to be worth one hundred trillion dollars because of his foresight here and how early and on the adoption curve he is, et cetera. Right. That still won't justify making a statement like that. He's still an ass in my mind for suggesting that people do that. It's an irresponsible thing to do. And frankly, I think it's pushy. I don't tell people what to invest in and I don't tell people how to manage their money. I talk about how I manage mine and what I'm thinking. You know, it's up to everybody else to make their decision. So I just think he's an ass regardless. I think that Larry approaches it the right way and he has worked through a lot of it. He's worked through a lot of the concerns that many, and and look, he's an Austrian guy. He's a sound money guy. Right. So it's not like he's got this super low bar. He's not some guy that you drag in off the Wall Street bets message board who's been buying shares of AMC for the last two years and say, hey, I got the next hundred X for you. And that's all they need to hear. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a thoughtful individual. And so I take what he has to say very seriously. And I don't know if it's just because I'm ready to hear it now in a way that I wasn't or if it's because of how he put it or both. But I am going to read the Bitcoin standard. I'm interested now in a way that I haven't been. But again, you know, I'm not a 50-50 guy like he is. 50% Bitcoin, 50%. I'm, you know. I don't, he's, I don't think he is even. He said, in his, it, it makes he up, said in his PA he's it, 50-50. 15. Oh, is that what he said? I think he's 85-15, yeah. I thought he said 50-50 PA, but even that is too too risky for me. You know, I just wrote a um, portfolio update for my paid subscribers And I'm going to read it to you because it's been out for a couple of days. And I just wrote, look, you know, first things first, I just want people to know that I think Bitcoin is 100% pure risk. And I wouldn't put anything into it that I'm, you know, not prepared to lose 100% of. It it trades like a risk asset, right? Mm -hmm. It, It goes up when the liquidity fire hose is on and it goes down when the liquidity fire hose turns off. Gold kind of does the same thing, actually. Gold's kind of been trading the same way. It didn't rise when gold went up after the Fed started QE. So it trades a little bit differently, but it's not as, it's it's way, way, way more volatile than gold. 
And so you just kind of have to understand that it's so early on in the adoption curve and it's so different in the, in the sense that the supply can't be altered and it's brand new and it's, you know, there's all these open-ended questions about it. The question is whether or not over the course of 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whatever, that starts to smooth out and make sense, which is something I'm open to. You could, you know, I used to say Bitcoin addresses the right problem, but it's the wrong solution. And I'm not sure that it's not part of a solution to the problem. I just well, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, hate it or love it. I know a good part of our audience hates it, doesn't want to hear anything about it. There's others that might be open to it. And I try to take a stance of I want to learn as much about a, about these different asset classes as I can, because I want to be able to challenge something that I or let's say be able to change my mind on something. If I used to hate it and I'm presented with new information, I want to be able to to be that flexible. I don't right, want to be right. that rigid in my thinking. I want to be I want to be exposed to these new ideas, and I want to hopefully help expose the audience to some ideas or or not even ideas, but maybe different ways of thinking about an asset class. That doesn't mean I don't still love gold, gold miners, silver, any of the EV metals, base metals, whatever it is, I'm still going to, you know, have that as my base case, because I don't think that, you know, energy need is going away. I don't think that energy production is going down anytime soon, or the need for, let's say, cleaner energy, things like that. But at the same time, I don't want to, let's say, necessarily miss the boat on some, you know, reasonably valuable asset or arguably valuable asset that has created a lot of value for a lot of people just because I hated it. And I think that's an interesting point that you're in some ways kind of changing your mind about how you see that. I'm not changing my mind because I've always been open to hearing the case for it. It's not like I've shut down you know, people's arguments about it. What I know is I cannot stand, I cannot stomach the people that promote it. I can't stand the influencers. I can't stand, you know, like I watch somebody like Max Kaiser and how he behaves at a conference on stage and it's just reprehensible. And I know he's worth a trillion dollars and he got in early. There's no amount of money in my mind that makes acting like that acceptable. It just, just my personal opinion on like ethics and like, you know, how people should carry themselves in a social setting and the people that I would surround myself with personally, that's not going to be the same as everybody else. Just my personal opinion. I can't listen to a guy like, you know, Pompliana. I just can't do it. You know, I can't, I can't stomach it. I can't, he just put out a thing last night. Oh, I'm sorry. I was pumping FTX. You know, I'm, I'm going to remove all my sponsors from my podcast now. It's like, all right, man, too little, too late. But I can't, I don't know. I can't tolerate that. Maybe it's just my experience as a short seller busting frauds for a living and, you know, penny stock garbage and just seeing the way these promoters act. But I find that you know, I find the promotional nature of it just reprehensible, you know, which is something that Larry talks about, right? He says that, like, he thought it was a promote at first. The the thing is, when you understand it, you understand that Bitcoin just stands alone 
on its own. It is what it is, regardless of whether or not anybody says anything about it. You know, the protocol is the protocol at the end of the day. So, you know, I think there is a sea of toxic waste surrounding Bitcoin, an ocean of toxic waste. And I think all of it needs to go away. And some of it, you know, has been carried out in 2022. And I think more of it will get carried out in 2023. But if you can kind of compartmentalize it and kind of put Bitcoin on its own. And that's why I'm interested in reading the Bitcoin standard. You know, you might be able to look at it a little bit differently. You know, that kind of stuff is a turnoff. It's hard to see through. You know, I'm a skeptic by nature, but I, I have always said about Bitcoin and I'll always say about any investment that I'm open to hearing both sides of the story. It's only once you have a full, you know, you have to leave ego out of it. You need to be able to have a comprehensive understanding of anything in order to make an investment decision on it, which means bring me the world's smartest bear and bring me the world's smartest bull and let me hear what both of them have to say. And I want to hear everything. I want to hear the comprehensive argument from both of them. You know, And for Bitcoin, for me, it's kind of been frustrating in the sense that it's not going away. And I feel as though there are people smarter than me that understand it in a way that I don't. And that is a frustrating endeavor and has motivated me to want to understand it further because I know I'm not the smartest person in the world. So what I'll say is I continue to approach it with an open mind. You know, I haven't really made any substantial changes as to, you know, how much I'm buying or anything like that, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in reading more about it. And I'm just, I don't know, uh, you know, I continue to have an open mind about it, but I'm still, you know, first and foremost, and I think I'm always going to be, you know, a, a gold investor. I mean, you don't replace 5,000 years of history as an economic instrument overnight. But do I think that there may be a case for both? Maybe, you know, if you gave me a million dollars tomorrow and you said I had to invest it in either gold miners or Bitcoin, the answer would be gold miners, and I wouldn't even think about it. You know, actually, silver miners, if you would let me, but um, I wouldn't even think about it. So, but I will say that you know, once you differentiate Bitcoin from the rest of crypto, because Bitcoin gave birth to an entire industry of toxic waste, an entire industry of nothing. You know, there there is all of these other altcoins and stable coins and. The companies that, you know, Binance and FTX and I mean, it, none of it is necessary for, for Bitcoin to be successful. None of it. The, enti- the, the entire crypto industry isn't necessary. Bitcoin in and of itself is really all Bitcoin needs. The Bitcoin protocol is all that Bitcoin needs. So there's a very pure aspect to it that is tough to kind of wrap your head around with all this other noise that's going on. Having said that, I'm not sure how it'll react if the Fed decides they want to, you know, look, if the Fed says they're going to start cutting rates, I think gold's going to go to 2,500. You know, I think gold, I think, I think we will see gold go up $500 an ounce at some point in two days. That, that's my prediction. I think once the Fed starts to make a pivot, I think we will see a move in gold, the likes of which we've never seen before. And I've been saying that I, I wrote an article about it. On my blog, I think that gold's heyday is coming. Starting to see it kind of bubble under the surface now, aren't we, Tom? Like th- there's been some interesting strength in gold here over the last maybe month 
was up, you know, up $40 an ounce just over the last two days. And we're really, we're still in this hiking cycle, right? We're, we're still in cash. was out this morning said, we're going to, you know, 540 basis points. Right. So why is gold reacting like that? This is just, this is the horse at the gate right now. Just kind of like amped up on amphetamines, you know, just waiting, waiting for that gate to open. That's what I think these little bursts higher in gold are now. This is people starting to think about the idea, you know, starting to think about thinking about the idea mm-hmm. of what's going to happen when the Fed pivots. Never mind the case if the Fed loses control. I mean, we go to yield curve control, forget it. You know, we go to yield curve control, gold's over $3,000 an ounce. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that, that that's a, it's a total loss of control if that happens. All right. But let's just talk about, you know, let's just talk about pausing rate hikes. Right. Okay. Well, what happens then? Well, the, you know, maybe we see 100, $150 an ounce, whatever. You know, then let's talk about easing. Oh, okay. Well, then, you know, maybe good for another 100, $150 an ounce. And let's talk about, you know, turning the QE spigot back on and bond buying. Oh, all right. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you can take those kind of scenarios that seem like they could definitely happen and and start to work your way up the spectrum of things that are a little bit less likely to happen, but still could very well happen, like yield curve control, like, you know, foreign adversaries challenging the dollar's reserve currency, somebody like China. Hey, I said a year and a half ago before the whole Russia war even started, before anybody was even talking about it, that China is going to back their currency with gold. I'm standing by it. I'm standing by the fact that they're going to back the digital yuan with gold. I think I'm right. I think we're seeing Russia now basically, in essence, create petrogold, right? They're only accepting gold for their oil. Or It's another step closer. And at some point, man, you take a situation like that where the reserve status of the U.S. dollar gets called into question in a way that's undeniably, you know, that we have to face, right? We, we, we can't financially engineer our way out of or you see something like, you know, the Fed go to yield curve control or emergency 200 basis point rate cuts, you know, that horse that's hopped up on amphetamines is going to run the fucking quarter mile at Santa Anita in, uh, you know, half of a second, you know, and break the, break the world record by a, uh, by a factor of a thousand. And I think it's possible, you know, as hate to keep bringing up Larry Lepard. I mean, I don't hate it. I love the guy, but I was just listening to him this morning, you know, he makes the case that you know the government needs to suppress the price of gold and silver specifically to kind of prevent this stuff. You know, you have a hundred to one claims on gold and silver. He's guessing. Let's just say that's the truth. You know, it's going to be a fight to kind of keep the price down. At some point, international markets, you know, are just going to make the call for us. You know, it's just uh, when the rest of the world is transacting gold for the equivalent of. an ounce in US dollar terms. Well, you know, what are we going to do? Say, no, we're we're pegging it to $2,000 an ounce. Okay, well, well, what do you have to back that up? Well, nothing. You know, we don't have anything. As a matter of fact, we don't even have the gold we say we have. So we'll lose control at some point. So I feel great owning gold and gold miners. We talk about it every time we talk. There will be a spot where Gold and silver miners, in my opinion, become nationalized because it will be the only sound money. So you get your 25, your 50, your 100x, and you make the life-changing amount of money. Thinking about, start thinking about ways to either move it 
move that money elsewhere. Just think about the risk of those companies being nationalized because you will not be compensated fairly when that happens. Just another thing to keep in mind, whatever, five years, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, who knows? But these are the things that my paranoid brain thinks of. Well, they're, they're all important things to keep in mind as I think, you know, all these conversations are exposing ourselves, like I said, to new ideas and thinking about the near term and longer term effects and ramifications of these changes in the world. But Chris, I think that's a good spot to wrap up today's conversation. I know we touched on a lot here and I hope everybody enjoyed it. Let us know. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.